Good afternoon. It's good to see all of you. Glad you could be here with us. Welcome to Zoe Community Church. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. If you could grab your Bible, if you have it, and open to the Gospel according to Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. Okay, not chapter 1, but chapter 2. We're continuing our Advent series, which we've been calling, What Child Is This? from the Christmas Carol, from the hymn. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at the story of the advent of Christ from the perspective of each of the four gospel accounts. So the first week we looked at Matthew, we looked at Jesus's family, his genealogy, what we could learn about who he is by where he came from in that sense. Last week we looked at the gospel of Mark, which actually doesn't talk about the birth of Christ at all. But we talked about how we need to view Jesus in his totality, right? He's not just a baby, but he came as a human being who had a distinct mission from God. Now, today we're in the Gospel of Luke, and this is the chapter uh, of the Bible that most people think of when we talk about the quote-unquote Christmas story. Okay, so I'm going to read from verse 1 to verse 21. I know it's a little long. Uh, I know it'll be familiar too, but pay attention to this text, and then we'll get into it. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds uh, told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. Father, we come before your holy word, and we know that it speaks truth. We know that your word was inspired by you, that it is your very breath. And no matter how familiar a story might be, every single passage, every single verse, every single word, 
God, is a scalpel that can cut deep into our hearts, performing the spiritual surgery that we need, giving us faith, building us up, convicting us of sin, and ultimately drawing us to Christ. And God, I pray that you would do that today through your word. God, that we would be drawn to the one who is called Christ the Lord. God, we need your help during this time. We can't do this on our own. So God, I pray, I ask that your spirit would help us, that you would open up our eyes and open up our ears, soften our hearts, and use this time to move us and to transform our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever done something because you had to? Not because you wanted to, but because you had to. Or on the other side of this, have you ever been stopped from doing something that you wanted to do because someone else had that power over you? In Charles Dickens's classic story, A Christmas Carol, we're introduced to this man named Ebenezer Scrooge. Okay, I think you might know a little bit about him, but in case you don't, Scrooge is a rich, miserly, truly horrible person. He has no friends. He had one friend, kind of, his old business partner who had passed away, but they had enjoyed uh, kind of spending their days uh, robbing from the poor and preying on widows and things like that. They thought it was funny. He does have some family. He has a nephew who annoys him constantly by being happy and inviting him over for Christmas dinner. And then he has one employee, this man named Bob Cratchit, who works for him. And you might be familiar or even over-familiar with this story, how Scrooge is visited by the ghost of his old business partner, Marley, and he's warned that he needs to change his life, and that he's going to be visited by three more ghosts, the ghosts of Christmas past, and then present, and then future. And they're going to show him things about his life and about himself that hopefully will cause him to change. You know the story. But the last time I revisited A Christmas Carol, a scene jumped out from the beginning, before any of the ghost stuff or before the main plot begins, when Scrooge is at his work and Bob Cratchit is there, and Cratchit asks Scrooge if he could maybe work a half day on Christmas instead of the expected full day. Now, it's just a small thing, but think about that for a second, okay? Most of us, okay, in America today, I know some people do work on Christmas, myself included. Thanks, Zoe Church. Just kidding. Um, but most of us, if there's one day of the year that we can expect not to work, to get a full day off, to get PTO, would be Christmas Day. But Bob Cratchit knows Ebenezer Scrooge. He knows getting a full day off is impossible. So he asks with fear and trepidation, can I just get a half day? And you can tell that he feels like he's overstepping, but he has a family at home. His youngest, Tiny Tim, is sick. He wants to spend time with them on the special day of the year. So he decides he's just going to ask. And Scrooge, he thinks about it for a little bit, and he says, fine. Fine, you can get a half day, but don't think you're going to get paid a full day. I just want to let you know, I'm going to cut your pay in half, and now get back to work. And Cratchit, who works so hard all the time for such little pay, who has legitimate reasons for why he might want to have this special day half off, do you know what he says? He says to this heartless man, he says, 
Yes, sir. And the reason he says this is because Ebenezer Scrooge is his boss. See, here's the thing, okay? We can't always do whatever we want. Okay, we understand this, don't we? Reality itself teaches us this lesson fairly early on. As children, we are limited, right? As children, we are limited by our physical strength. We can't overpower our parents. When we're kids, we're limited by our height. They might put something up on a shelf or on the counter. We just can't reach it without assistance. And as we get older, we encounter more limitations, more like metaphysical ones, you could even say, certain laws. Maybe we try to jump off the roof to fly, and we realize that gravity is a law that we can't break. Or maybe about the law of the land. Maybe you try to drive your parents' car and you got pulled over and you were in big trouble. Why? Because it's against the law to drive if you're under 16. We're limited by laws. We're limited by how much money we have or rather don't have. We're limited in the sense that we are compelled to do some things we don't want to do. And on the other side of this, there are some things we do want to do. We just don't have the power to do it. Bob Cratchit had to be okay with whatever Ebenezer Scrooge decided, even if he disagreed, even if it was wrong. Why? Because he was his boss. If he disagreed, if he stepped out, he could be fired. If that happened, he he couldn't provide for his family anymore. His options were severely limited by things outside of his control. Now think about this today. As we get into the book of Luke and what it says about the birth of Christ Think about this. What are the things in your life that limit you? What are the things outside of your control that press in against you? Or maybe they are in your control, but you just don't see it. Some are obvious. There are things that limit all of us, like gravity. I just talked about it. The CEO of your company. Some of the things that limit us aren't even bad, right? If you make a promise, hopefully it does limit you a little bit. You want to be a man of your word, a woman of your word, right? It's a good thing to be limited by the commitments that we make to a certain extent, usually, But think about your own life. Think about it like this. Think about something like, why do you feel like your work always has to be perfect? Has to be. I know we have some perfectionists out here. Maybe it's in school or in your job. Why do you feel like it must be right? Or if it's not right, you just can't live with it. Or why do you feel like you have to do all these Christmas decorations and meal planning and Christmas activities and crafts for the kids and so on and so forth, even though it's killing you? You're getting sick. Everyone's saying you don't have to do it, but you just feel compelled. You feel constrained or controlled. You gotta do it. Or why do you feel like you have to smile at church and say you're fine, even though you're not? You feel this pressure. I have to. There's no way I could choose otherwise. And then here's another question. We're at church, so where does God fit in with all of this? Now today we turn to the gospel according to Luke, like I said, and fun fact, okay, Luke was the first book I ever preached through in depth in my life, in my ministry career. I know, I know. It wasn't just me. It was me and my friend Brian, and we decided we wanted to preach through one of the gospels And we felt like John was too hard, and Matthew was too long, and Mark was too short. So kind of Goldilocks rule, we went with Luke. Little did we know that Luke is actually a beast, and by word count, Luke is longer than Matthew, or John, or any of the other books in the New Testament. So we started getting into it, and we were going verse by verse, like word by word, the way we wanted to do it. And we enjoyed it, okay? We did enjoy it. But the thing about Luke is, Jesus isn't even born till chapter 2, and chapter 1 is really long. And we were college pastors, So we have these students coming to school 
and they go through an entire semester, and we haven't even gotten to Jesus' birth yet. And then we were going so slow that it took longer than four years. And college, newsflash to us, is usually four years. So literally no student heard the entire thing. It took us like five or six years. In fact, I don't even know because I left in Luke 20. Because throughout that entire time, you know, we had decided we were going to church plan. And we had been praying about it. And we felt called to move to Texas. And I just moved. It was like Luke 20. And I told the next college pastor, I said, please just finish it. Okay, for my sake. And he did. He did it all fast. He's like, let's do a survey of Luke 20 through 24. I don't know what he did, but he finished it. But I didn't even hear the end. So I didn't even get to the cross myself. But anyway, Luke has a special place in my heart um, because of the history I have with it. And really the truth is all the gospel accounts do have a special place in my heart. They all generally tell us about the same thing, right? Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. But each has a different angle. Each has kind of a different perspective that it brings to the table. Something unique that it tells us about who Jesus is and, and why he came. So to help you out, here's kind of how I think about it sometimes. Matthew is the teacher, okay? Matthew is the teacher. He records so much of Jesus' teaching. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon, is in Matthew, it's only in Matthew. And then Mark, okay, he's the storyteller. And Mark is the shortest gospel. But whenever he tells stories, usually he gives the longest version of it. He gives the most details. His stories really pop. They're really vivid. Okay, I love the way that Mark kind of tells the story of Jesus. John is the theologian. Okay, he gives so much about what Jesus did. But also on top of that, he gives what it meant. Okay, what it meant at the time, how it connects to other things. And John really is maybe the most layered book in the entire New Testament. Some might even say it's the craziest book in the Bible. And Luke, Luke is the historian, the most highly educated of the four, a physician by trade who meticulously compiled a sort of biography about the historical facts, the details, the real details in real life about who Jesus is. And the thing about Luke, okay, is that he writes the most about the birth of Jesus. Mark didn't even write about it at all. But Luke, in fact, when we think of the details of Christmas, we're often thinking about Luke and only Luke. Like I said, the miraculous birth of John the Baptist to Zechariah and Elizabeth, the angel Gabriel appearing to Mary, the census that brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem, the manger the inn with no room, the shepherds and the angels, which we just sang about, all of that comes from Luke, just Luke. But the story is so familiar, I think. Uh, Out of all the stories that we're going to look at, out of all the accounts, the story is so familiar in Luke that I think we can easily miss out on what Luke wanted to communicate. Jesus Christ, yes, he was born in a manger. There were angels, there were shepherds. But what he's showing us is that Jesus was born into the real world. Okay, where things were happening in history. World-changing events were going on around him. And yet, into the heart of that, Jesus Christ was born. Not just as a good teacher or wise man only, but as Christ. The Christ. The Lord. In other words, you might even say, the boss. So let's get into it. Three points from our text today. First point. We won't be able to go through all of this or else you might graduate from college before I'm done. So first point, first point, Augustus. Augustus, as in Caesar Augustus, which is about understanding who 
or what really rules over us? Let me start off with a question in this point. Okay, kind of similar to last week, but let me ask you a question. What would you say is the context of the Christmas story? What is the context of the story? There are a lot of ways you can answer this. You can talk about when, right? It happened a long time ago, 2,000 years ago. You could talk about where it happened far, far away in a land called Bethlehem, uh, uh, halfway around the world from where we live. You could think about kind of the vibe or the atmosphere. As the songs say, it was a silent night, a holy night, always calm, always bright. You get a feel for it. And that's not wrong to think of it that way, uh, per se. But it's not how Luke begins. Because if you look at verse 1, what does it say? In those days... A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Luke starts off by talking about a decree from the emperor of Rome. Now, do you know what a decree is? It's an order that has the force of law, usually. Okay, It's something that you have to do because the powers that be, the people who have control over your life, at the end of the day, say you have to do it. And Luke, the historian, situates the advent of Jesus Christ in a way that we haven't yet seen in Matthew or Mark. He places the quote-unquote Christmas story firmly in the flow of what was happening at that time in history. He mentions someone we know a lot about from sources outside of Scripture, Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus. This decree is from none other than Augustus himself. Now, who was he? Okay, I don't want to bore you with a super long history lesson, but it's important to know at least a little bit about him. Caesar Augustus was the first true Roman emperor. And this means he wasn't born as an emperor. As a matter of fact, he was born into a regular family, a regular super rich family, but a regular non-royal family nonetheless. And he was given the name at birth Octavian. His father died when he was young. He was eventually adopted by Julius Caesar, the Roman general, the one with a haircut, to be his heir. And a lot of stuff happened in his life. Julius Caesar was assassinated. Octavian was able to defeat these assassins. And as time went on, he grew more and more powerful. He defeated even his uh, rivals and allies next. And he rose to power as the supreme leader of what used to be the Roman Republic and what ended up becoming, under his watch, the Roman Empire, which at its peak, okay, stretched three continents and lasted for about A thousand years. He got the name Caesar from Julius, but Augustus was also given to him. It was a name, but it was more than a name. It was a title. It meant venerable or majestic. And that's who he was. There are few men throughout history, maybe none, who wielded the absolute unquestioned authority that Caesar Augustus did. At his height, he was virtually unchallenged. And whenever anyone tried to step up to him, he squashed it easily. And that's why it's hardly an exaggeration for Luke to say that he sent a decree throughout the world. I mean, nowadays with, you know, the internet and international travel, we say, well, he wasn't over the entire world. But if you lived in the empire, which spanned three continents, at least at its peak, and you lived somewhere, let's say, in Jerusalem, everywhere you knew of, north, south, east or west, it was all Rome. Everywhere you looked, the sun would rise and set in your mind on the Roman Empire. This is the historical context of the birth of Christ. Now, turn with me to Matthew 5. 
Matthew 5. I know we already did Matthew, but I want to show you something. Matthew chapter 5. You can keep your place in Luke 2, but go to the first book of the New Testament, Matthew 5. And I want to show you this because this context of the Roman Empire and Augustus, it's just so far removed from our experience, right? Like, sure, our government does have some authority. It can interfere with our lives. Some of us think too much, but nothing to the level of how Rome could interfere with you, okay? Now, this is a famous passage. We might not even focus on what I'm going to focus on usually, but look at verse 38, Matthew 5, 38. This is Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You can stop there. Again, famous passage, an eye for an eye, turn the other cheek. But I want to focus on verse 41 in particular. Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, then go with him too. What is he talking about? Right? Is this some kind of first century CrossFit or something? It's not. Understand that Rome's empire grew through conquest. Okay, military defeat. The legions would come in and you could not, you could not stand up against them. And the people they conquered didn't all have the same status or citizenship once they were conquered. Some people were citizens of the empire. They had certain privileges. But a lot of people, basically, they were just subjects. They were subjugated. And by and large, the Jewish people were not citizens and were treated accordingly. So one thing that Roman soldiers could do if they were stationed in the Palestine area was they could talk to any random Jewish person who wasn't a Roman citizen, and they could make them carry something for them for an entire mile. No questions asked. That's what it meant to be under Rome's boot, uh, boot, like their sandal, whatever they were wearing, right? An entire mile. Now, it was very inconvenient, right? It, it was like not easy. You had to drop whatever you were doing. But beyond that, it was humiliating. You were a human pack animal. It was deflating. It was demeaning. But this was real life for everyone who lived in this area at this time. Now, back to Luke 2, Luke chapter 2. Rome was absolutely supreme. You got to understand this. And supreme over Rome was Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar Augustus, whenever he decided to do anything on a whim in his palace, everyone had to do it. No questions asked. And he decreed, he decided one day, I just want to count the entire world. He decreed that everyone should be registered. We're talking about a census, accounting of all the people who populate the empire, probably for the purposes of taxation. Now look at verses 2 and 3. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And what does it say in verse 3? And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now there are governors over certain areas. There's enforcement of the will of Caesar. And verse 3 tells us that everyone, all people, obeyed. Because they had to. And this includes one now very famous carpenter and one very pregnant woman, verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee 
from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now we know the story. Okay, we all know these story beats, but think about it in its context. Joseph lives in Galilee, okay, northern Israel. Okay, that's where he lives. And his soon-to-be wife, or technically really his wife in a lot of ways, Mary is full-term, about to give birth literally any day, but then Caesar, all the way in Rome, decides on a whim because he's Caesar the emperor that everyone needs to be counted, everyone needs to go to their town, and Joseph, even though it's the most inconvenient, difficult thing in the world, has to just pack up and travel down to Bethlehem on foot to southern Israel. He has to get his super pregnant wife ready, who's about to give birth any day, why? To be counted, why? To pay taxes, why? Because Caesar said so. That's how it is. Joseph and Mary are not free people. They are subjects. They are subjugated by Rome and by Caesar. And maybe you're thinking, okay, that's a lot. You said, you said that you weren't going to give a long history lesson, and that was like 10 minutes long. For me, long is kind of a fluid word. <laughs> But maybe you're thinking, okay, that was a lot. I get it. Tough on them. But what does that have to do with me? I live in Texas, right? I moved to Texas. Why? Because I love freedom. Right? You want my registration, Caesar? Come and take it, right? That's what we say. Sure, we don't live under Caesar. But we need to think about this more carefully. Because as the great American philosopher, Bob Dylan, once sang, you're going to have to serve somebody. Let me explain it like this. I remember I heard a pastor talking about this. Uh, this time he went to pick up his daughter from school, and she was a little kid. She was painfully shy. And this day he went to pick her up. I think she was about five years old. And you could tell right away when he saw her that something was wrong. Uh, she ran up to him, and she just crumpled into his arms, and she started crying. And he was like, whoa, what's wrong? You know, what's going on? Like, are you hurt? What happened? I'm here, right? I love you. Don't worry about it. It's all Okay. But he said the whole time, right, the whole time, even when she was in his arms, even when she was crying, he noticed that she was looking. She couldn't stop looking at all the other kids around. And he kind of put two and two together. She was paralyzed by how much she cared about what they thought. That had something to do with that. And even when she was upset, even when she was done with school, even when she was with her father, all she could think about was them and their opinions. And he didn't want her to feel this way. Don't you know that if you just didn't care so much, you'd be free, right? Don't fear, man. But then when he thought about it, he realized, and he said that this was almost like God just bringing this, this lightning bolt of conviction into his own heart. Even when he was there, he realized that he was exactly the same. That so often, he just lives controlled by other people. That he lives for them. For all intents and purposes, he is a subject. He is subjugated by what other people think and what other people say. Now listen, we all serve somebody. That's what the Bible says. The question isn't, does anything or anyone rule over you? No, the question is, who does? What does? I mean, it could be the opinion of others. This is so common. So common. Some of us are so used to living, though, for the approval and applause of other people that we don't even realize we're doing it. But if you think about it, if you can just somehow get outside of yourself and view yourself objectively, everything in our lives is controlled by this. We're super careful about the things that we say. We're so careful. 
When our spouse accidentally says something too honest, right? Oh, the reason we didn't come is because we didn't want to go. We're like, shh, how dare you reveal who we really are? We even twist the truth sometimes to make sure we don't come off the wrong way. We only share the good stuff about our lives. And when we do share the bad stuff, it's carefully curated to make us look like we're so authentic and raw, right, and humble. I remember one time I shared about how great of a sinner I was. And honestly, I expected the usual thing like, wow, pastor, thank you for being so honest and just being so real. And one guy said, wow, you really are kind of bad. That's what he said. I was like, oh my gosh. You know, I shared that for an opposite reaction. Look, a lot of people struggle with this. And think about this, okay? What happens when someone doesn't like you? For a lot of us, it kills us. It kills us. All we can think about is how to win that person over. And if it's impossible, then we all we, all we can think about is how terrible that person is and, and how we, they, they don't deserve to be our friend anyway. And we shouldn't even listen to them. We have to justify it in our minds. A billion reasons why. Does the opinion of others rule over you? Does it rule over you? For some of us, it's not other people. It's actually us. We rule over ourselves. We have met the enemy, and it is us. And I don't mean in a self-disciplined or self-controlled way, which is good. I mean more like we love our own comfort so much that it becomes an idol. We're controlled by comfort. We decide whether or not we do anything based on how comfortable or uncomfortable it'll be. Oh, I can't reach out to that person. That person is so hard to talk to. I would just die. Oh, I can't help you out this weekend because... I just had such a long week. Don't you understand that I like need my time? And look, it's, it's okay to rest. Okay. It's okay to be comfortable even. It's not in of itself bad, but is everything you do pass through that filter? Would, would this be too hard for me? Would this require sacrifice of me? Would this be uncomfortable? You'd be surprised how easily we can be ruled by something as simple as this. We can be ruled by personal safety. We obsess over safety and making sure that we're protected or health or we can be ruled by ambition and success we can be ruled by the desire for a certain instagram worthy lifestyle a certain generation of us jesus said on the sermon on the mount matthew 5 24 no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve god and money and some of us say how could you serve money just look at how people live You're going to have to serve somebody or something. So besides the God-given authorities in our lives, parents, presidents, whatever, what are the things that rule over you? What is control over your decisions? What are the things that actually cause you to lose sleep at night? Are you aware of the things that vie for control over your life? Are you conscious of what crowds out the throne of your heart? What are the things that make you feel like you have to do X, Y, or Z? Because those things, my friends, even if they're fine in and of themselves, if they rule you, if you're ruled by them, they're idols. They're idols. So think about it. If you're not ruled by God, you are ruled by something else. And this leads to the second point, authority. That was the longest one, by the way. Again, long is fluid, but that was the longest one relatively. Second point, authority. Augustus, authority, which is about who you should really or who should really rule over us. Verse 6. 
And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, again, most of us know these story beats like the back of our hand, right? Swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger, no place in the inn. But keep reading, verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And you can almost hear it in Linus's voice. I feel like even the way I read it, it's been affected by watching the Peanuts Christmas. But you know what's interesting? What's interesting is that every year Disney takes their theme parks and they like Christmasify them. You know what I'm talking about? Like they decorate it with like a big tree and with, you know, lights and stuff like that. But even beyond this, okay, they kind of adjust their shows to be about Christmas. And I was there one year and I went to the fireworks show. I waited, you know, for the fireworks to go and they did a Christmas story, but it wasn't just the Christmas story that I expected from Disney, right? It wasn't Rudolph. It wasn't the Nutcracker, or it wasn't even Santa, okay? Actually, what it was is they read straight up from the Bible. I once heard Chris Evans, right, Captain America, reading scripture to all of us as we watched, you know, like fireworks and fake snow come from the sky, telling us about a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And I looked up the list this year of the celebrities that are going to read, at least at Disney World, and it's like Marvel superheroes and Julie Andrews maybe or something. And just these different people. This year, they're literally reading Luke 2, the exact same passage that we're in today. So on the one hand, it's a little cool, right, to be at Disneyland and to hear... I mean, anytime scripture is read, that's a cool thing. It can't be bad. But on the other hand, it was very strange, okay? Maybe even disconcerting. Because for most of the audience... And I know for sure most of the readers, if not all, I don't think it registers what they're reading at all. Because if you read verse 9 again, it says, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with what? With great fear. Does it say warm and fuzzy feelings? Does it say Disney cheer? It says great fear. The natural reaction to what actually happened was fear. Now, yes, of course, the angel says, fear not. Okay, that's good. But that proves my point even more. The story of Christmas, the true story of Christmas, is told nowadays in such a sanitized and safe manner. It does bring warm feelings to our hearts. But when we do this, we're robbing it of its real teeth that we see right in here, as I talked about last week. The first ones to hear about what happened that day were filled with great fear. And it's almost a meme nowadays, right? That we look at angels as these cute little babies or something like that. But if you saw a biblically accurate baby or angel, then you would be freaked out out of your mind because literally every time someone saw an angel in its true form, they were terrified. But how often do we associate reading about these angels, singing about these angels with fear? Anyone getting a little sweaty when we're singing about angels from the realm of glory? When you think about it, that is very... Freaky. Okay, it's supposed to feel otherworldly and scary, something beyond our natural experience. How often do we associate fear with the glory of God? We're singing about, uh, in Latin, about glorifying God, glory to God in the highest, but 
How often do we associate that with fear? How often do we associate fear with Jesus or with Christmas? And yet, if you read the scripture, fear is the natural response to so many of these beats. Luke 1, an angel appears to Zechariah, right? And it's such a good, such a good thing, right? Like, they haven't been able to have kids, but they're going to have a son named John in their old age. But what does it say in Luke 1? That Zechariah was really scared. He was afraid when the angel appeared. Later on in Luke 1, Mary, Mary, highly favored. An angel appears to her, and guess what? She is afraid. Luke 5, Jesus goes on to Peter's boat, and he's teaching there. And then there's this crazy miracle where they catch all this fish, which you think he'd be happy about, right? He's a fisherman. He gets a miraculous catch. Instead, Peter falls on his face before Jesus, and he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He's afraid because he recognizes in Jesus the Lord. And that word is so important. The word Lord in Greek is the word kurios. K-U-R-I-O-S. Okay, so not curious like curious George, but curious, curios. And there's layers to this. Curios is the translation of the Hebrew word Adonai, which means master. And it's what the Hebrew people would call God. Okay, you got to understand, okay, when God revealed himself to his own people, to the people of Israel, he said, my name, my personal covenantal name is Yahweh. But he also said, do not take my name in vain, ever. And they took this to the extreme. So extreme that even when they read the word Yahweh in the scriptures, they would say Adonai instead, which means master or Lord. Because they never wanted to even accidentally take his name in vain. So, when they called Jesus Kyrios, there was a sense in which they were calling him Adonai. Which if you were a Hebrew person, a Jewish person, you understood, referred to at its core, not just master, but Yahweh. There's a divine element to it. And then even on top of this, Curios is what the Romans called Caesar. Now, I'm not exactly sure when this started, but in New Testament times, there was a saying, Kaiser Curios in Greek, which means Caesar is Lord. And they believe that Caesar was divine. In fact, we found writings that say things like, Divine Augustus Caesar, son of a god, imperator of land and sea, and benefactor and savior of the whole world. Sound familiar? The claim Christianity was making actually came in a certain historical context. Everyone was saying Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Savior, but they were saying, no, actually, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Savior, Jesus is the true Son of God. It's why, one of the reasons why, Christians were persecuted so heavily in Rome. Now, why are we talking about this? It's because from the very beginning, from the manger itself, what was Jesus called? What did the angels say? They said, he is Christ the Lord. The true ruler of the world. Not Caesar. And if this is true, if you think about how powerful Caesar was, and if Luke is saying that Christ is the actual Lord, shouldn't there be a little bit of fear in that? In fact, if there's no fear in that at all, no fear in us, something's off. You know, I was talking to um, our brother Vin about Undercover Boss. You guys remember that show? He really likes it for some reason. Um, but Undercover Boss, basically how it goes is uh, the boss of a company, the CEO, the president, uh, will go undercover, okay, hence the title, 
as you know, an entry-level employee or work in the warehouse to kind of see how the employees who are so far removed from them are actually working and living and to get a view of the company kind of on the ground, right? And I remember, I think it was actually a spoof of this, um, but the CEO, okay, was working in the warehouse and he, he, he was, uh, you know, he wasn't used to doing like hard manual labor and stuff, carrying boxes, and he was really having trouble, right? He was messing up the whole operation, uh, he was really frustrating. He was making all these mistakes. And one of the other employees kept berating him. He's like, what are you? Like, are you a dummy? Like, what's wrong with you? You're ruining this company. They're bullying him, calling him a waste of space by the end of the day. And then, of course, at the end, he comes out and he's like, okay, I have an announcement. And they're like, hopefully you're quitting, right? Like, get out of here. He says, I'm actually the CEO, right? Rips off the mustache or whatever. And that guy who was bullying him, all of a sudden, it's like, hey, you know, I was just kidding about that stuff, right? Like, I knew you were the CEO the whole time. I just wanted to give you that uh, that real experience. Why was he scared? Why do you think he was scared? Because turns out the guy that had all the authority over him was now his enemy. And this is what we have to understand. What Luke 2 is saying, what we hear all the time at Christmas, it's actually potentially very frightening because... God has all the authority in heaven and on earth. And what the Bible is telling us is that God has been born. The Lord has been born into the world. The boss has entered the chat. The true authority over our lives is here. And the question is, are we living okay or living in a way where we be okay with God just showing up? Would we be cool with God checking in on our performance? Do we have a clear conscience? And of course, yes, God is gracious and kind and merciful, but don't forget that God is God, and that if Caesar is this powerful, how much more so is the true Lord of everything? Okay, think about this. Okay, Caesar issues a decree from his palace, and literally everyone, down to like the lowliest people, they just have to follow it. There's no choice. The Roman legions with their generals and centurions and soldiers, they will enforce his will, disobey with threat of death. It would seem he has absolute authority over his domain. And yet, if you step back, there's something deeper going on here. God said, God said that the Messiah, his anointed one, all the way back in Micah 5, 2, hundreds of years before this, that his Messiah, his anointed one, would be born in a specific city, Bethlehem, the city of David. And yet, Mary is about to give birth And Joseph and Mary are just chilling in Nazareth, waiting for the day to arrive. But then they get this call, they get the news, the announcement that a a census, a decree has gone out, a census is being taken, you gotta go. And so Mary and Joseph leave, and they go to Bethlehem, and the baby is born there, exactly how God said it would happen. So what does God do here? He is using the decree of Caesar for his own Greater ends. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Have we forgotten that God is God? Look, we talk about him so much. We sing about him. We study him even. We pray to him. But sometimes we forget just how crazy it is that there is a supreme being. There is a supreme being of absolute perfection and authority outside of time, three in one, beyond our understanding. 
and that he created all of us and everything, and he stands in judgment over all that he has made. God, who is so holy, three times holy, in fact, that Isaiah, one of his own prophets, stood before him and felt like he was disintegrating. He said, woe is me, I am coming undone, for I am unclean. Look, the question is, do you fear God? Because, honestly, you should. Even the demons believe, and they shudder at the thought. So ask yourself the question, consider this, why do I feel sometimes that I have to do all these other things for other people or for my own comfort and enjoyment and safety, but often I don't feel like I have to do anything for God? And I'm not talking about legalism here, okay? I'm talking about authority. Just think about it. And maybe you do fear God, that's great. But this is one of the biggest weaknesses in the church today. When God says, love one another, do we say, maybe, if I feel like it, or if I don't, then I'll pass when it comes to these certain people. When God says, pray without ceasing, do we consider it optional? If I can fit it into my schedule, then I will. When God says, you must forgive, what do we do with it? Christ the Lord was born into our world 2,000 years ago. It's a frightening thought that into the flow of history stepped down God Almighty. And this leads to the third and final point quickly now, Advent. Advent, which means arrival, basically. The shepherds were freaked out by the angels, by the glory. The angels say, Christ the Lord has been born. It is kind of scary. Everything is about to change, but look at verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Manger, manger, manger. They see this baby lying in a feeding trough for animals. The least glorious entrance into the world you could possibly think of for the Lord. And yet, it is no unfortunate accident. This was the sign. That's what the angel said, verse 12. This is how Jesus was supposed to arrive into the world. Now, understand this. I said Caesar was called many things that Jesus was called. All these flowery titles, divine Augustus, son of a God, savior of the world. It's not that Christians copied it. It's that Christians believed it was all wrong and needed to be corrected. But you can understand why they called Caesar these things. He was so powerful, it behooved you to kiss up to him. Right? No point in fighting against him. It was futile. You should kiss up to Caesar. But when they called him savior, there was actually something to it a little bit. It wasn't just flattery. Because Caesar Augustus, among many things he's famous for, was famous for ushering in what was called the Pax Romana. Okay, the Roman peace in Latin. His reign began kind of this two-century golden age where there was peace in the empire, where there wasn't danger from without, where Rome just grew, didn't have any major threats, where you could walk along the roads and travel and you could do missions work as Paul did. But see, the way he accomplished this was that he basically killed or massively hurt all of his enemies, all the peoples that would stand against Rome, personal or otherwise. Now, if you keep reading, look at this, verse 17. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. 
And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And then look at this. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. They called him Jesus. Now, we said it before, but this is important. What does Jesus mean? It means Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is salvation. So put it together. Jesus, the salvation of God, the true God who created heaven and earth, arrives into the world that he made, but not like Caesar Augustus. There's nothing majestic about it. He's humble. He's lowly in a manger. In fact, the sign is so lowly, it's almost unbelievable. But this is God's way. And here's what we see in the advent of Jesus Christ placed in the context of the reign of Caesar Augustus. Caesar used his power to command from his palace in Rome on his whims. But Jesus was born lowly in a manger because he came not to be served, but to serve. Caesar was a man who wanted to be seen as a God. Jesus was God who willingly became a man, even a little child. Caesar achieved salvation by killing those who opposed him. But Jesus, what did Jesus do? He came to give his own life as a ransom for those who had opposed God, namely us. It's you and me. So you're going to have to serve somebody. But everything else, everyone else, they will chew you up and spit you out. If you live for money and things, you will never have enough. You will constantly be on the chase, getting gradually more and more dissatisfied and discontent. If you live to serve your own safety at all costs, you will grow paranoid and you will fail, I think, to be fully sacrificial the way you were called to because it opens you up to be sacrificial for others. If you live for yourself, you're going to find that you are not immortal, that you don't have the power to save your own soul. So Luke presents to us Christ the Lord. And our choice is, will you fall on your knees or not? Now turn with me to Luke 7. We'll go here and then we'll close. Luke chapter 7. This was our scripture reading. I'm sure this is not the first thing you think of when you think about Advent or Christmas. Luke 7, starting in verse 1. And I think you'll recognize some of these things in a new light. Luke 7, verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion, that is a Roman soldier, had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. Now, uh, he's a Roman soldier, and not just any soldier, but a soldier in charge of 100 others. All right, that same root word, cent, cent, centurion, century, or cent, 100. That's 100 miles, okay? You could legally force Jewish, Jewish people to walk. Okay, remember that, verse 3. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is uh, the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to them, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd and followed him, and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. 
And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Now, we could spend a lot of time unpacking this passage, but what just happened? You have a Roman centurion soldier call this Jewish man what? He calls him Lord. Do you see that? And he said, though Jesus was no Roman citizen, he said he was not worthy to have him under his roof. Don't even bother walking over. Save yourself the walking, the trip. But he also said, I know you can do it because I understand authority. What does this mean? Well, remember Caesar. When he said count, everyone, they had to do it. Joseph and Mary had to travel. The circumstances didn't matter. And this is what the centurion is saying. He says, I know you are the Lord. You can do anything you want. You can heal anywhere, anytime. The circumstances don't matter. So I just humbly ask, will you let my servant be healed? And what does Jesus say? Does he say you're right? You're not worthy. And for your deeds, your servant will die. Romans should have treated Jewish people better. Sorry. Does he say, you're right, I do have all the power. And I say, no. No, he doesn't. Jesus, and this is amazing. Jesus marvels at this man and he says, I haven't even found this faith among the people of God. And when they go check on that servant, he's already healed. And that's it. You understand? We aren't worthy. But there is a way to God by grace through faith in Christ the Lord. And if we find it, or rather if it finds us, it can change everything. So let me ask you this. Would he find that kind of faith here in this room? Would he find that kind of faith there in your heart? Faith that understands. Faith that knows with a burning conviction deep down in our bones that Jesus is God. And what that means is God can do anything. Jesus can do anything that we are not worthy for we haven't lived the lives we should have lived, that we are lost in our sins. But what Christmas means, what Advent means What we see here in Luke is that Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. And what this means as we look upon this baby, who is Christ the Lord, born in a manger, that we have a chance, we have an opportunity to turn to him. So look, what if we stop giving power to the idols in our lives who are not gods at all? What if we stop caring so much what other people think and instead started caring only about what God thinks the God who knows all of our failings and yet sent Jesus anyway to redeem us? What if you stop making comfort or the bottom line, the ruler of your heart? And what if Jesus, who gave up his comfortable, I'm presuming, throne in heaven and became poor for us? What if Jesus was the one we gave our full lives to instead? There is literally no one like him. We'll close here. I was watching the Disney Mickey Mouse version of A Christmas Carol. It's called A Mickey's Christmas Carol with my kids yesterday. Sermon preparation, as you know. And I saw the Bob Cratchit part played by Mickey Mouse, and it's a pretty good adaptation, I'd say. But even though it's Disney, when the ghost of Christmas future visits Scrooge, he takes him to his future gravesite, and it's pretty dark. Okay, they see the grave diggers like digging up a hole for the coffin. And then Scrooge goes to look and he sees his name on the tombstone. And then he gets pushed into the hole, right? He gets pushed into, you know, where the coffin is going to be. And he's trying to hang on. And then the coffin opens up and hellfire comes out. And then he just falls in all the way to hell. 
pretty dark for a Disney, Chris, a Disney Christmas kind of thing. But it is true to the story. It's true to reality. And I just want to be straightforward with you guys. Hell actually is real. In fact, Luke records Jesus saying, Jesus himself saying this in Luke 12, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. He says, fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So if you believe in God here today, and I know most of us would say we do, do you live like you do? Really think about what it means to say you believe in Almighty God. It's not a game. It's a matter of life and death, heaven and hell. There are eternal consequences. God will not be mocked. And yet that being said, Jesus goes on to say the next two verses. He says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And now one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And this is the crazy thing about who Jesus is. If you understand who Jesus is, then you know that you should be scared out of your mind. It's the scariest, freakiest thing you could ever think of. And yet what does Jesus consistently say to those who come to him, who come to realize who he truly is? He says, fear not. Because God actually cares about you. And this Christmas gift, his Christmas gift to the world, is this true divine person, the real king, God's only begotten son, Christ, who is the Lord. So this season, here's what I'll leave you with. Will you receive it? Will you clear out whatever it is that's taking up space in the deepest parts of your heart? All the other things that you're living for that will chew you up and spit you out in the end, will you clear those things out? Will you repent? And will you, like, like Scrooge, take the opportunity given to you right now? You have life today. Will you change? And will you turn to him? Because it's right here. Will you pray with me? God, every day is grace. Every day is a mercy. God, we know that you are not slow in fulfilling your promise. That Jesus is not not coming back because he is slow. God, but you desire for us to come to repentance. And I pray, God, for all of us in this room, that we would take you as seriously as we should. That you are God, and that means that you are absolute. And yet, God, I pray that that would not drive us to despair, but I pray that that would drive us to Christ, who offers to us his nail-pierced hands, who offers us salvation by grace through faith alone. And I pray, Father, that every heart in this room would make room for him. That by faith, we would place all of our lives in him. And that this Christmas, we might receive life eternal. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.